Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. You all here? Excellent. Good to have you. If you're our guest, welcome to Seoul. We're just thrilled to, to have you here. And uh, I want you to pull out your phones if you've downloaded the app already and you picked your nickname. Watch the screen, and I'm going to trust the team's going to put it all up there. Uh, fabulous. Thank you. Excellent. That's the number that you want to plug in into your Kahoot app, 823342. And uh, I'll give you a few moments to download, to put it in. This one's a, a different, um, a different questionnaire. It's going to take, it's going to be a little bit more harder. You had a choice of two before, now you got a choice of four for the most part, so... We'll wait a few moments to see which names are popping up here. Remember to be nice. All right, how are you doing? Just take your time, it's okay, don't panic. Bless you, my son. Bless you. It's holy hot water. That's what this is. All right. How many names do we have up there? I don't, I don't have this TV on here. So. Usually we're going to go about 100, roughly. We're still loading up. Just give it some time. Still, some people still trying to get on? Oh, thank you. We're going to see just how good you are in regards to sexuality. Uh, again, I'll just outline, uh, today is a PG-13. So parents, what I will be discussing will be very clear. Um, I'm just throwing it out there. And probably I'll just say this for some of you who uh, have a tendency to get upset and aggravated when the pastor uses certain words and you want to get up and leave, I'd highly encourage you to sit at the back. And I don't want any emails. How's that sound? Thank you. Okay, we're still moving. Is everybody in? No? Okay. We're just, <laughs> this is fun. I worked hard at this questionnaire. Now, for all you educators, uh, while we're just waiting for people to load in, uh, if you go to uh, kahoot.com, you can actually create your own slides, but they also have a whole um, uh, already pre-done slides, and uh, it's a whole lot of fun, especially if you want to teach uh, your kids, if you're a, a teacher or if you're a professor. Uh, you, can, you can make it your own, you can do quizzes, you can do surveys, you can do all different types of uh, utilities, it's just a whole lot of fun. So, we got somebody, it's a pizza, I think, is that a pizza? Is that, I don't even, or a party popper, okay, awesome. Plant nerd, that's a good one. Everybody in? No. Okay, I'm giving you just a few seconds. It's booting up. We're almost ready. I expected about 100 people players. We're almost ready to go. Do we have 100? Are you in, Jax? Jax, are you in now? Are you in now? How about now? You have kids. You know what it's like. Are you in now? Jax? Oh, oh hi, Uncle. All right, there we go. Okay, we got 100 people. Let's start it, please. Sex with the Lights on part two. 12 questions, are you ready? Here they go. What percent of adults think viewing porn is wrong? 25, 50, 75, or none? All right, we got them all. Hits next there, please. Okay, Tashi. Oh, you're going a little too fast, guys. So, okay, next. Um, uh, 30% think it's wrong. What percent of teens and young adults believe it's wrong to view porn? 
Just let it, just let it sit down. Don't hit skip. There we go. 33% of teens believe it's wrong to view porn. Next. There we go. Oh, Jerry likes hugs. No, he doesn't, but go on. <laughs> Teens and young adults say, not recycling is more immoral than viewing porn. True or false? Not recycling is more immoral than viewing porn. True. Isn't that interesting? Next. Oh, Jerry, like, Jerry is getting very nervous. Okay, I need you others. When I, I look at porn when I am stressed, I think about intimacy, and then I think about sex. I'm bored, or I don't look at porn. <laughs> no, answer for the person sitting next to you. <laughs> They're all right. All right, so you all got the right answer there. Interesting, that, that response is very interesting. Okay, next. Living together prior to marriage can increase the chances of divorce by as much of 10%, 23%, 36%, or 40%. Living together prior to marriage. And just so you know, all these stats are documented. That's the crazy thing. And they're not just Christian stats. Let me throw it out there for you. Answer is 40%. Isn't that interesting? Let's move on. Ah, oh, sick. Okay, keep going. <laughs> if your parents are happily married, your risk of divorce decreases by how much? 10%, 14, 25, or 53. If your parents are happily married, your risk of divorce decreases by how much? That's right. 14%. All right, next. What percent of first marriages end in divorce? 35, 41, 51, 55. That's right, 41% of first marriages. None of this 50 over plus 50. It's a misnomer. It's 41%. Let's go to the next one. Nickname, thank you. All right. Uh, what percent of second marriages end in divorce? 25, 45, 60, 65. What percent of second marriages end in divorce? That's right, 60%. Isn't that crazy? Nickname is uh, doing it there. Okay, let's move on. What percent of third marriages end in divorce? <laughs> That's right, 73% of third marriages end. All right, uh-oh, here we go, next. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is six years, eight years, 10 years, or 12 years. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce. Eight years. The average length of a marriage that ends in divorce is eight years. Let's go to the next one. Oh. The average age of a couple going through their first divorce. The average age of a couple is 25, 30, 35, or 40 years. Average age of a couple. Thirty years. Next. Oh, Vovo, Okay, great. Um, the Talmud forbids sex during the day or by the light of the lamp with the lights on. True or false? 
The Talmud is a Jewish uh, commentary. It forbids sex during the day by lights on. True or false? The answer is true. Isn't that interesting? Let's see what our scores are. The ginger pulls it off. Who's the ginger? Where's the ginger? All right, here, I got a wonderful Starbucks card here for you. Thank you for pulling that one off and saving me a hug. I really appreciate that. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. So, you have some fun there, right? It gives us a, a, a taste of what we, what we are in our culture. And if you missed the last two weeks um, of our life lessons, we really want to encourage you to go online to watch, to listen to the podcast, to be caught up. And today we're going to ask the question, basically, what happens when sex goes wrong? And, uh, you know, is that even possible? Well, when we understand that what the Christian worldview of sex uh, is, that, uh, that is in and of itself, that sex is sacred and that God has put certain boundaries around the use of sexuality, then yes, things can go wrong. Very wrong, in fact, with incredibly painful consequences. And I, you know, I highlighted that uh, last week, and you need to, if you missed it, you need to watch it. And our culture markets to us in everything that sex is somehow the apex of relational experience. It is the Mount Everest of relationships and companionship, and it has, everything has to do with great physical sex. And it's like we're desperately trying to keep up with the sex that we think that the world is having, when in reality, all the sociological data paints a very different picture. By and large, our culture's view of sex is, is divorced from any true relationship. Our society finds that you're hooking up and there's friends with benefits. It's a, it's a legitimate form of recreation. And this amounts to sex without commitment. And it degrades people. You have these hookup apps like Tinder, Blender, Down, Bumble. They give the ability to connect with people physically without any kind, kind of relationship. It's divorced from affection. And it's divorced from commitment, which are actually natural boundary lines by which humanity flourishes and is not harmed. Now, we've removed all that. That's all it is. Sex is a thrilling, physical, biological happening that is not connected to my mind or my spirit. It's just physical. It's just the same thing as eating as a good steak or riding a good carnival ride. It's just something that's thrilling that doesn't ultimately affect my heart or, or spirit. That's what our culture says. And one of the things that is becoming more vibrant and the more secularized we get as a culture is the hypocrisy and how we see and think about the world around us. What we know with a, a ton of data is that viewing sex simply as physical pleasure with no true relationship, with no true affection, with no real commitment, doesn't address the deeper needs that we all have as human beings. We have a desire for intimate, rich, deep relationships. I love hugs, contrary to popular opinion, but it's just from her, or the boys, but even then, like, James, like, hugs too long. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been on James's hug, but it's too long. <laughs> you know, we all have this desire, and so sex is a mere physical act doesn't solve that. It, it does not increase respect between genders. Watch the news. The idea of sex is just a physical act has not led to a mutual love and a mutual respect between the genders. In fact, more and more women in our culture are treated as something to be consumed. It hasn't created a more loving environment for children. It hasn't been able to uh, been removed the ache of personal loneliness, nor has it fostered intimacy. The USA Today did a survey in 2017 written by Mary Borman. You can Google it. Sleeping together before a first date is okay, but crack phones are put off. So the, the, she researches all these millennials, and they believe it's more intimate to go on a uh, it's it's more intimate for them to go on a first date than it is to actually have sex. What? Again. 
few thousand, you know, millennials are thinking, well, you know, sex, sure, no problem, we can do that. But going out together, having a conversation, that's way too intimate. But that's our society. That's where we're going. Now, over the last few Sundays, we understood the physiology of sex and the biology of sex and how it's wired into us. It is God who has created sex and sex is God's idea. There's no part in this narrative of creation where God builds man and woman and then he gets distracted and busy doing something else and then the devil comes in and introduces sex into the cosmos to deceive us. No, not at all. God puts certain cells and parts in our body that exist only for pleasure. That says something about God. That says that God is not anti-sex. He's not nervous about sex. He doesn't have any regrets. It's not like he's up in heaven going, oh myself, this is so gross. He doesn't do that. That's not how God is operating here. This is God's idea. This is God's ideal. But what happens when sex is used and misused outside of his ideal? Again, this is a life lesson that can't and won't address all the issues in the time that I have here this morning. I will, though, conduct a course after doing all this study on first Wednesday on March 7th called Handling Our Sexuality. Watch for the details because it will be coming. Many counselors are going to tell you that there's a greater intensity of shame and pain in the people they counsel when the issues involve sex outside of the bonds of marriage. That biblical term pornea we looked at last week, sexual immorality, that's how it's translated in scripture, means all sex outside the bonds of marriage. It's used 44 times in the New Testament alone. And this is where God draws a line between sex within marriage and sex outside of marriage which determines what is sin and what is not. And so now Paul, in that culture, he writes the church and he says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. What's he saying? That all other, that, that all other sins outside our body, but sexual sin, interestingly enough, touches you deep in your heart and in your soul. In Thessalonians, he's right, it is God's will that you should be sanctified or holy or pure, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So the will of God for us is to avoid sexual immorality. That means avoid all types of sex outside the bonds of marriage. There's no ambiguity in that. There's no, uh, are you sure, are we, this is, no, there's no ambiguity in the sense that God wants us to be morally pure as believers. He doesn't command moral purity to to deprive us of fun, but rather to increase our ultimate pleasure in one another, but also in him. It may be helpful to think of sex kind of like a solder that God created to make it strong. It's a powerful bond that creates healthy, stable families in which you know, children, if possible, are welcome. But when people fuse their souls through sexual sin without the safety, without that commitment of marriage, it causes tremendous pain when the relationship is ripped apart. Have you ever seen a broken weld? When sex is disconnected from, from love and commitment, it's, it also disconnects the body from the soul. This inflicts deep wounds of shame and guilt on a heart that, is, that is, you know, has been used for gratification, objectification instead of love. Counselor Waylon Worry, he says that sexual sins expose and exploit our deepest emotional and spiritual vulnerabilities. He goes on and he writes this. He says, in the counseling office, individuals rarely, if ever, weep scalding tears about any other sense of loss like they do for a sexual relationship when it ends. There are soul ties that bind two partners together in unseen ways, and there's a sense that part of you has been stolen. There's a hole in your soul where the connection was ripped from you. You know, I write this message and I often ask myself, is anybody listening? Or am I standing on a stage pontificating? Our culture says if it feels good, do it. You're entitled. But while this, this belief about sex may feel good, it's, it's most definitely not good for us. And note the runaway epidemic of sexually transmitted diseases that are happening. The results, or sorry, infections. i got to be politically correct. And the results of increased infertility 
because of that. Note the number of broken hearts. Note the number of broken families in our culture. Note the alarming amount of sexual abuse. Note the soaring rates of depression, especially in teens, much of which is related to sexual activity outside of marriage, obviously. God invented sex for his glory and for our benefit, but his basic rule is keep sex in marriage. It isn't to be a killjoy, but to protect our hearts and our bodies and our relationships and our families. And I think he knows what he's doing. And if it's God's intent that sexual intercourse is to bound two people together for life, what would we expect of premarital sex and cohabitation to be living together? You know, those, we just saw the sociological data that those actions should make marriage less likely to work. And that's what the facts show. Andrew Greenlee in his book, Faithful Attraction, recorded that the more premarital sex people have, the more likely they're to have affairs in their marriage, the less likely they are to have optimal sexual relationships in marriage, the less likely they are to be satisfied with their marriages. Sociological data. Numerous studies over the decades have shown that people who cohabit, who live together before marriage, are more likely to divorce. Isn't that crazy? And all of the ways we humans follow up God's design, we have these long-term negative consequences because some of the stupid choices we make. Well, you're being very opinionated. Yes, I am. Because the data shows, the scripture shows, and we ignore it. If marriage occupies this place in God's plan, and if sex is so important you know, for God's plan in marriage, we can see the vital importance of our obedience to God's standards and sexuality. Obey his commands. Oh, we can do all that for Jesus, except for when it comes to our sexuality. No, obey his commands. Sex is a gift, but it's a gift that we can abuse. God's intent is that sex be used rightly inside and outside of marriage. Inside of marriage, its proper use is for pleasure. It is for procreation. And as something to be shared lovingly with gratitude to build up the unity of the couple. Outside of the marriage, the proper use of sex is to honor God by costly obedience and living a chaste or celibate life. Hear me now. Though this is difficult, we learn to value obedience over gratification. We learn to serve God instead of serving our own lusts. Heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pansexual. Call, the call of Christ is the same regarding of whatever your leaning is. If you find yourself unmarried, God wants us to live a chaste, celibate life. Okay. It's there. God says that sexual purity is a treasure to be guarded and to be valued. It's a reflection of God's own character. It's what makes it so valuable in our culture. Many people have been deceived in thinking that their virginity is worthless, that it's just something to get rid of, but it's a special gift that we can only give to one person one time. And God calls us as believers to, uh, to purity before marriage, but after marriage as well. By remaining faithful to our spouse. Purity before marriage and during marriage prevents ghosts in the marriage bed. It prevents comparisons and, you know, and those things are so deadly as it is intently intimate, especially when they invades the realm of sex. And we glorify God in our sexuality by using self-control to, to stay pure if we're single and by loving our spouse sexually if we're married. And the good news is that purity can be restored if we just simply confess our sins and put our trust into Jesus to forgive us and to give us a new holy quality of life. The Bible promises if we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God stands ready to forgive, ready to cleanse, ready to restore us the moment we ask. And that is so good to know. Is it? Thank you. God wants us to harness the power of sex within marriage. And this means that all other expressions of sexuality are off limits. Not because God is this killjoy, but because he loves us and he knows what's best for us. Namely, not playing with fire. Three times in the Songs of Solomon, which is the best 
biblical sex manual around. It says, don't arouse in or awaken love until it so desires, which means until the time is right. As I minister to sexually broken people, many of them bear the still painful scars of childhood sexual abuse from people who should have never opened the door to sexual experience. Their entire view of sex has been warped and skewed. God never meant for children to be introduced to sex. It's for adults. It's for married adults. God wants us to actively fight sexual temptation. The battle is harder than it's ever been because of our sex-saturated culture. He says to flee immorality, to run away. In fact, God says to offer not even a hint of sexual immorality. That means that it's a violation of his intentions to engage in phone sex with strangers, virtual sex in chat rooms and porn sites. The fact that you're not physically touching another person's body does not mean it's not sin. Because the battle begins in our mind first. Let's talk about porn. Not everybody in our culture feels porn is a bad thing. We saw that. Yet porn is dehumanizing because individuals become reduced to objects and sex is reduced to a bodily function. That's all it is. And unfortunately for millions worldwide, the go-to choice for medicating pain and suffering is sex. And so our pornography addiction is huge and continuously growing. And it's a growing problem, not just for guys, but also for women. Both genders can train their brains to need that rush of novelty, a new image or a new story that will feed that lust for more. And where the porn addiction, where there's porn addiction, there's also a masturbation addiction as well, and there can be. Like even among those who have never had any sexual experience with another person. Porn's a medication. And what do we want when we're in pain? We're just like patients in the hospital. We want relief. We want desire. We want, you know, we want comfort. We, we want it now. In 1988, the year we got married, before the internet and the smartphones existed, Leadership Journal did a survey on sex in the American clergy. Of the pastors responding to that survey, 20% said that they actually looked at sexually orientated print, video, or movies in the last month. And, you know, and for you younger people, that means they actually have to go get a magazine. And, you know, and that's what you used to do. Go to 7-Eleven, you can buy a magazine. I think Jordan made mention of that. That's what they were doing. 38% of these pastors. So of that 20%, 38% of that 20% said that they find themselves fantasizing about sex with somebody other than their spouse at least once a month. That same survey found that 12% of pastors, right, admitted to committing adultery since entering their local church ministry. Wow. Leadership then goes to the readers of Christianity Today back in 1988, asked the same questions to people who were not pastors. The incidences of immorality were nearly double, with 23% people at that time admitting to extramarital sex. And the stats are truly frightening. Today, according to industry studies, this is not off a Christian website. 70% 70% of 18 to 24-year-old men visit pornographic sites in a t- typical month. One in three viewers are women. 25% of all search requests on the net are porn-related. There are 116,000 searches for child pornography every day. They say that the average age a child sees the first porn image is 11. 20% men watch porn at work, while 13% of women do. Internet porn used when broken down, 72% of male, 28% female. If you spend 11 hours a week or more on porn, you're considered a sex addict. And some of you are doing math. I have to throw in humor and sarcasm to bring a little bit of levity in this whole thing. Repeatedly viewing porn can negatively affect your sex drive. More than 50% of those engaged in sexual internet interactions had lost interest in sexual intercourse. Let me just give you a story, a pastor story. And having to counsel a couple where the guy had to go to porn first before he can make love to his wife. One third of their partners lost interest as well. 
40% of sex addicts lose their spouse. 58 suffer serious, considerable financial losses. One third lose their jobs. Porn use increases marital infidelity rate by more than 300%. 56% of divorce cases are involved with one person having an obsessive interest in porn websites. Severe clinical depression was reported twice as frequently amongst internet porn users compared to non-users. And guess when the most popular, this, this blew me, the most popular day to view porn is Sunday! <laughs> like, wow, I can't believe it. I couldn't believe it when I saw that. And then our culture says there's no harm in viewing porn. Houston, we got a problem. And so did the Thessalonians. Granted, they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the internet to tempt them. But they did, in a li- they did live in a sexually promiscuous culture where the goddess Aphrodite, who was amongst the most popular deities in Thessalonica, was a symbol of sexual license and the patroness of all the prostitutes. And man could go to pagan temples. They could commit immorality with the priestess as an act of religious devotion. And various forms of extramarital excess were tolerated. They were even encouraged. Commentator and study, F.F. Bruce, he wrote, a man might have a mistress who could provide for him, also with intellectual companionship. The institution of slavery made it easy for him to have a concubine, while casual gratification was readily available from a prostitute. The function of his wife was to manage his household and to be a mother of his legitimate children and heirs. Wow. So Paul's commandments for sexual purity were as countercultural in that day as it is in ours today. Remember what I've been talking about? That we need to be real with ourselves, we need to be real with God, and we need to be real with others, right? Do I get an affirmation at, at any point today? I don't preach to get claps. I, get, I preach to, to bring you to a point of thinking. But I want to know that you agree at least at some of these points. Because it starts here now, being real. When we come out of hiding, people, healing can begin. When we come out of hiding, healing begins. Porn addiction is is not a gender issue. Porn addiction is a human issue. And we turned our sexual desires into an obsession, bound in a cycle, unable to break free. And yet porn is not your problem. It's the medication for your problem. Having an orgasm is easier than building real relationships with people, isn't it? (laughs) I got an affirmation. But only the latter is going to bear good fruit in the long run. Listen, you're not alone. And so recovery from sex addiction is a marathon, not, not a sprint. You can't do it alone. We have a great recovery group called Celebrate Recovery. Every Thursday, 7 o'clock, you need to be here. Some of you need to be honest with yourselves and before God and, and before others. And you need to take a step and join us on a Thursday night. Many people within the church feel that we shoot our wounded and when they admit that they have a problem. Let me just say this, not here, not at Seoul. That's not who we are. We want to walk with you. We want to help you in this whole process. We want to help and be there alongside you to experience forgiveness and deliverance. But the fact of the matter is pornography is not this thing that is this distance. Pornography is actually personal and it's self-created. Porn users today, porn is user-created. It's often shared now with a known person. It's shared with a friend or a significant other or a potential romantic interest. You know of which I speak? (laughs) Sexting? Snapchatting nude selfies? Provocative posts on Instagram photos? All the youth say? Yeah. Ouch, thank you. Perhaps this is inevitable. inevitable. We, we, we should have seen this coming from YouTube to Snapchat to Instagram. The internet has offered us users a chance to create and distribute our own content now. 
to share the details of our lives with friends and with strangers. Of course, the demand for more and more intimate details is always going to increase even as the barriers to exposing oneself is lessened. Four in ten people on TV, I watched it this week, four in ten people aged 16 to 20 have sent a sext. Two in three have received it. 46% of youth who've received sex have sexed. I can't even say that word. Have shared it with somebody else. So you've received the picture. you shared it with somebody else. More boys, 53% than girls, 40% have done so. There's a law against that. Our society says there's a law against that. 35% of participants felt that a girl shouldn't be surprised if it gets around. Especially if she sends a sex to a boy she isn't in a relationship with. What in the world are you thinking? I'm an old man at this point. I don't know. I don't get it. And dick pics. I don't get it. Only 11% of teens and 5% of young adults say their friends think viewing porn is bad. The vast majority say their conversations with friends around porn are either neutral, accepting, or encouraging. This is our culture. This is what our young people are growing up in. It is assumed now we all look at porn. And when it comes to watching pornography, teens and young adults aren't getting accountability from their friends. They're getting the peer pressure. Many don't even consider sexting a porn at all. When you look at sexting and the motivation behind it, it's important to see it as a sort of a replication of a, really a broader social behavior. They see this behavior, this sort of self-pornification, rewarded when their celebrity icons go and they do it ahead. Kim Kardashian breaks Instagram, right, with her nude photos. This is what culture says, hey, it's okay to do. And young people have come of age in our increasingly pornified culture that encourages and it re rewards the pornographic impulse. And this type of porn offers much of the same promise as traditional pornography. It's disembodied. It's a visual experience. There's no attachments of intimacy of sex. And there's also variety now because the, the truth is sexting uh, often happens well before a relationship even begins. In those early get-to-know-you stages, it's not uh, at all unlikely that a person is sexting with multiple potential partners at any one time. Ladies, if he's asking you for pictures, he's asking somebody else as well. You're not special. And here's the thing. Even if we all agree together to call sexting and Snapchatting new pictures a, a form of pornography, we also have to acknowledge together that this is a new step in porn because it's personal. And it, it, it is a particularly dangerous step because it invites us not only to just sexualize our relationships, which we've already been doing for a long time, but it also invites us to disembody and therefore detach from our relationships. In short, we objectify people. Isn't our culture trying to fight against that? And at the same try, time trying to do it? You have a crush on a girl with a little bit of persuasion, you can convince her to send you a topless photo. You get to experience her body. <laughs> you probably experience personal pleasure at the same time. Of course, without intimacy, without physical proximity, without any of the embodied risks of having physical sex. You give nothing of yourself, gentlemen. This is and, and this becomes another danger. Those who are sending photos begin to feel their own sense of validation and self-worth coming from the objectification and the distribution of their bodies. In other words, ladies are thinking, if I want him to like me, then I have to do this. All the other girls would do this. Now, I know I'm beginning to, to gender this, if I can say it this way. To make assumptions that the requester is a boy and the sender is a girl. But the stats actually bear this out. That girls are both more likely to send and to receive nude images. 
And the more I thought about this, the more I realized what's happening here because we as men, we're actually the initiators. That's, that's the way we're wired. That's my wife. I'm always chasing her down. That's just the way we're wired, right guys? We chase our women down. That's called t- t- testosterone. We chase our women down. That's what's happening here. So guys are the initiators. They're the ones asking for the pictures. They're also the ones often sending the pictures and resending the pictures. However, not all guys, I'll say this, are engaging in this. Thank you. And there are plenty of men who aren't asking or sending nude photos. They're choosing not to do this. And so they are predominantly immune to this phenomenon. Girls, on the other hand, are indiscriminately targeted ladies. They may not initiate, but they will inevitably be forced to respond to a request for a photo or to a photo showing up in their text, uninvited. Whether they want to engage or not, women will experience this reality, unfortunately. And this type of porn, it's porn. It's destructive. It's destructive to our ideas of a healthy sexuality. It's destructive to our body images and our self-confidence, our fledgling relationships, our call to live in an intimate embodied presence with one another. However, it's a reality we can't ignore as believers. It's the reality our young people are living in. It's a significant new contour to the life of the single, of the dating teen, of the young adult, of the unmarried, of the divorced, of the widowed. The Bible views the body as something so important. I wish we would. Something to be taken care of and to be used in God's service. Not to be used as just simply a sexual toy. How many Seinfeld fans do we have in the house? Come on, I want some admission. How many Seinfeld fans do we have in the house? Yeah, Seinfeld. No, Woot Woot? No? Have you seen the episode called The Contest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Master of my domain. Boy, we're quiet when the pastor starts talking about masturbation, aren't we? Well, we're going there. So, if you've never heard that word in church, welcome to Soul Sanctuary. Seinfeld, the contest, it's all about a wager that's placed between four friends, George, Jerry, Kramer, and Elaine, to see who can go the longest without masturbating. Any, anybody want to care to admit to watching this episode? Never thought you'd hear this being talked about on a Sunday morning. I always have a hands-off approach when it comes to masturbation. Just want to throw it out there. There, Finally a joke. Finally some response. Some of you, you still don't even get it. You know, let, let me just be really honest. The topic of masturbation is highly debated within the church at large. And first, some never talk about it. You don't talk about it. You should never preach about it. It should never come out of your mouth as a pastor. If my mom was here today, I wouldn't be preaching this sermon. I would have pulled something out. Yeah. Some people say it's a sin, it's bad, it's a sin of Onan. Actually, it's not, but that's what you know, some people are going to say it is. Some say it's fine. And they actually say it's even natural in certain contexts, like a couple in marriage. Some say masturbation is part of a healthy sexuality. As a matter of fact, James Dobson, for all you focus on the family heroes, he said, it's my opinion that masturbation is not so much an issue with God. It's a normal part of adolescence, which involves no one else. It does not cause disease. It does not produce babies. And Jesus doesn't mention it in the Bible. So maybe you're single and you feel like masturbation is your only outlet for sex. Or maybe your marriage has become virtually sexless. And masturbation seems like the only reasonable answer. It's even possible that your spouse or your partner has turned around and given you the blessing because they don't want to do the actual work, so to speak. But if you can't stop doing it, then it's probably safe to say that things have evolved to an unhealthy level. Anything can become compulsive, even addictive. When a sexual behavior like masturbation reaches this level, it can have very unhealthy consequences on your life and on your relationship. And we need to realize that sex is meant to be shared with another person. Sex is not about just simply pleasing ourselves. It's not just a form of physical gratification. Sex is a real part of building physical intimacy. It's about sharing yourself with another person with whom you are spiritually and emotionally connected like your spouse. 
Masturbation actually takes the focus off uh, of sex off intimacy and it simply puts it on pleasure. It's just simply about pleasing oneself, obviously. And sex is not about that. Sex is about connection. And so when masturbation becomes compulsive, not only does it completely lose focus of the intimate purposes of sex, but it also becomes a form of self-medication. And it turns into an escape. And this is where compulsion transitions into addiction. And if you think you might have a legitimate problem, please contact us here at the office. We want to help. Again, we want to encourage people to go to celebrate recovery. JourneyCanada.org. I can't say more about it. Check them out. They are here for us. I think we need to look at, at Jesus, though, as our example. Let's look at Scripture. Jesus, was, Jesus models healthy sexuality at all levels. There was no question about his masculinity. There's no question about his biological sexuality. He was brought up <clears throat> according to the appropriate cultural norms for Jewish males. And obviously, a, a, a man, other, uh, other men obviously respected. They followed him. His life was this rich demonstration of a person at home with a, a, an effective sexuality. He openly enjoyed the companionship of both men and women. He gave, he received touch from both. He shared his ideas. He shared his emotions with his close friends. He didn't hesitate to express his need of their support. In other words, Jesus was not afraid of intimacy. We do know that he did not have a sexual partner in the realm of genital sexuality. He modeled abstinence. He was chaste. One of the key purposes of the incarnation is to show us what the fulfillment of humanity means. The fulfillment of uh, the fulfilled humanity which Jesus lived out, uh, you know, didn't include genital activity or marriage for him. And so we got to sit there and ponder the significance of the fullness of life modeled by Jesus ought to help us overcome the culturally reinforced notion of incompleteness that is often felt by those people who are not married, by single people. But the fact of the matter is that most single people are not only battling cultural messages, but you're also battling your own natural physical drives and desires that are healthy, that are placed there by God. And our society's current attitude to such drives and desires is that the only healthy thing to do is go out and find, go out, you need to get laid. How many times do you hear that? And Christians have not been quick to offer an alternative which really satisfies that underlying longing. How do you respond to that? And so outside the safety of marriage, sex can be wounding and hurtful. But God created it for our pleasure and for our delight. Again, Songs of Solomon, God enthusiastically invites newlyweds to enjoy his good gift of sex. Where he says, eat, friends, and drink, O lovers. In fact, God wants married couples to bless each other by enjoying sex often and regularly. I'm pretty sure, like I said, First Dalmatians, it talks about that married couples need to have sex once every hour. I'm, I'm, I'm positive in that biblical quote. Amen. All the men said Amen. How many of us heard they lived happily ever after? Those are the final words of almost every romantic fairy tale. Hey, did you hear about the husband who walked into the bedroom holding two aspirin and a glass of water? His wife asked, what's that for? He says, well, honey, it's for your headache. She goes, I don't have a headache. Gotcha. <laughs> Little levity. But we live in a fallen world, don't we? All you guys are going to be trying that at home. <laughs> Ladies, just take the aspirin. That's all I'm going to say. Life in a fallen world inevitably encounters disappointment and disillusion. For someone they get married, they think it will be filled with a lifetime of sex on demand. <laughs> right? So some of you get that joke. When in reality, we now enter a relationship that is actually sexless. And it's a bigger problem in our culture than many people tend to realize and any people actually want to admit. So what do we do about the lack of sex in marriage? Well, Jerry, you said it's all great. It's all supposed to be good. When we get married, it's supposed to happen. Yeah, but other stuff happens as well. 
And again, this needs to be dealt with in a seminar setting. And I'm going to give it a quick mention here. Sex and marriage is to be a gift that is to be celebrated with vitality and reverence, along with the appreciation of, of, of God's goodness. But good sex is not an act. Good sex is a relationship. Monogamy is not a lack of partners. It's being an expert in one. It's an opportunity to specialize, so to speak. It's been said that when you've, when you've promised to drink only from one spring, its water will be sweet. A healthy, satisfied marriage keeps couples from seeking gratification by, by cheating. Above all, commitment to one another and to God, that's what keeps couples faithful. But what if the marriage is sexless? What happen, And again, it happens more than you know. And let me say that unless both individuals have mutually agreed that this is going to be how the marriage will function, unless they both mutually agree, then you have a serious problem. Sex within marriage is about intimacy. Eric Elder says in his book, intimacy really means into me see. It is only safe to reveal the fullness of who we are. Your, 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 your partner, your spouse sees your warts and all. You, to, to be intimate to someone who loves us and is committed to be faithful and supported to death to our part, despite what we are like. The fullest experience and freedom of sex is found within the marriage bed, which God says, what? You're to keep it holy. You're to keep it set apart. And God says that we are to use self-control to keep all expressions of sexuality limited to marriage. But if there is a sexless marriage and it's not a mutual decision, then there's a problem that needs to be gently addressed. And in some cases, having a sexless marriage, and I'll just say this, will push your partner to porn. It will push your partner to affairs. And secrecy is the enemy of intimacy. And sometimes a lack of connection sexually is a symptom, actually, of a deeper trust issue in the marriage. In other words, you need therapy. You need counseling. In the marriage bed, let me talk to the guys first. Gents. To pressure, to force, to manipulate sex is so outside of what God actually has for you and for your wife. And when you do that, the damage you cause happens not just to your soul, but also hers. And you rob both of your souls when you manipulate, when you coerce, when you force sex. You're reaping a harvest of loss and destruction that is probably hard to get your mind around because you haven't tasted the goodness of cultivating that deep friendship don't just take a physical act into your marriage when weakness and vulnerabilities are seen you enter that with compassion and grace not with demands and not with whining there's never been a sexy pouty man has there ladies right ladies you understand that Guys, you're moping around the house all day, and she's never going to be like, oh, nothing gets me more hot and bothered than you pounding around the house like a child. Probably not in that kind of rough voice, but <laughs> guys, we have to enter this space with grace and patience and kindness. Do you know why? Because that's how God entered your space with you. God was gracious, patient, and kind with me. As a married man, I need to do the same with my wife. In the Songs of Solomon, one of the, the things that is fascinating, found in chapter 4 on their honeymoon night, it becomes clear, you know, she's really insecure. Early in the chapter, she says, you know, I'm weather beaten. Don't look at me. I don't look at, don't, don't look at me. She's so insecure. She has all the stuff. On their wedding night, the entire night seems like it's him trying to draw her out, you know? And he's like, look at your hair. Look at your eyes. Look at your cheeks. Look at your nose. Look at your mouth. Oh my gosh. Look at your teeth. Because Solomon has some weird stuff about teeth. I don't really get it. Every time he describes his girl, he's like, oh, wow, you got all your teeth. They're like whitewashed ewes, which is a sheep. You know, you're not missing any of them. They're a white flock there. He just geeks out about this. Oh, oh, baby, you have all your teeth. I love this. Look at your chin. Look at your neck. And then he approaches her breasts. Oh, he said that again on the pulpit. They're like two fawns. Solomon's doing drugs. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. I'm telling you, if I see fawns when I look at Sharon, I have to be high on something. 
Sorry, dear. <laughs> How do you approach fawns, people? We see them in the park. They run across our cars. We run over them, right? How do we approach them? Do you run at them? Fawns, come here, come here, come here. Ah. You don't run at baby deer. They are frightened creatures. Do you see the connection Solomon's making here? Basically, when you look at the Songs of Solomon, he's going, I will wait all night if I have to. I'll stay out here if I have to. The goal for me is not so much a physical sense. Although I'd like it to be, but it's not. It's love. Love in such a way, the mingling of souls occur that I want to value her. I want to love her. I want to woo her out of her insecurities until she can rest and give herself to me. That is intimacy. Right? That is slow. It requires patience. It requires grace. And man, the pursuit of your wife's heart should always be the object of your desire. To the point that they're fighting you off. They're probably already fighting you off. But that's what it needs to be. We don't need to do things to get sex. We love because we love. Are you tracking with me? With that in mind, I got some things I want to share with guys. Four things married men should never do. Number one, get emotionally vulnerable with a member of the opposite sex. That means another woman. Because I'll be honest, some guys just don't get that one. If you're married, it's your spouse. Well, Jerry, you don't know she doesn't, you know, she doesn't meet my emotional needs. Yeah, I know. Comfort counseling. You have a problem. Number two, don't keep score. You want to know a great way to keep, kill intimacy with your wife? She's trying to keep score. And as a matter of fact, this set can be ref- back with ladies too, right? Resentment will kill intimacy in the relationship, but don't keep sw- score. Guys, don't be going around, honey, can we make love? I took out the garbage. I did. I, I swept the fly. I shoveled the driveway. That's keeping score. Or don't try to fix your wife. Guys, just let her be. Warts and all. Listen, be kind. Back her up. We all, as husbands, have had that conversation where we felt, our wives felt that we have never had their backs. Back her up. Let her vent. That's one of the things that we have. It's very clear when we have to talk, you know, because as guys, we want to fix the puzzle, Right? So when Sharon comes and says, I need to vent, she can go off. I can, I'm already solving her problem. That's easy for me to do. But she doesn't want me to solve her problem. She just wants to talk. And she's got about like 150,000 words in an, an hour that she needs to get out. <laughs> so you let her talk. Let her... And guys, don't, uh, don't stop doing the little things. Let her know that you still cherish and respect and desire to surprise her. Do the little things. And for some of you, it's, hey, pick up your socks. <laughs> Take out the garbage without being asked, you know. Don't bring it up when you do. Oh, look at me. <laughs> Maybe buy her those flowers. Maybe take her out on a date. Maybe it's just a cup of coffee from Starbucks because, like, Tim's is not a good thing. <laughs> Now, ladies, it's your turn. Four things married women should never do. Never take on activities, including time with the kids that consistently keep you away from your husband. Read that. Don't, don't make the kids an excuse to stay away from your husband. In our day and age, you can do everything you can to spend time with the one that you love. Never keep things from your husband. Ladies, never keep things from your husband. And never regularly send the signal, I don't desire you. I I was actually startled to learn that for most men, sex fills an emotional need even more than a physical one, when you think about it. You know, for a guy, you know, it's not getting enough sex that matters, but knowing that my wife desires me. Supposedly, when we go snowmobiling, she thinks I'm hot. I got to think about that. I'm wearing a helmet and a whole snowmobile suit. How can that be hot? I'm hot, but not hot, hot. 
we're going snowmobiling today just to say. <laughs> you know, we need to know that our wives desire us. And so ladies, if you are routinely too tired and don't initiate physical intimacy or simply don't make a sex a priority, it actually sends very depressing messages that will eventually deeply hurt your man. And somebody just fell out of your chair. (laughs) And not only does it hurt your man, it hurts your marriage. Number four, never make your man feel inadequate. And I'll say this, many women do this with their words. What they say and what they don't say, the withheld word. Encourage your spouse, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies, unless you are the one who has really strong sex drive, I need to add this, then biologically speaking, the hormones that work in you and the hormones that work in your husband are different. I think we know this from grade school. Testosterone is going to put in men a desire for a lot of sex. Often for most men, that's normal. That's how we're wired. Hence the first Dalmatians quote, But not for all men, but for most men. Estrogen is not going to produce that same drive in most women. But there will be times when you ladies, you want to give graciously to your husband. Us husbands wish it was all the time. But he doesn't get to demand that from you. But there are times like, ladies, you're like, hey baby. Oh God, ladies, we love that. Just throwing it out there. But he's not allowed to demand it. And you don't need to feel bad if that just isn't happening this day or this week. Okay? Be confident in who you are and the way that God designed you. Band, if you can come up. I just want to encourage you if you're stuck because of past abuse today. Maybe you're here and a whole lot of triggers are going off because of shame and guilt that you carry because of many, maybe a lifestyle before you you came to Christ or before you came into this marriage or if your marriage is filled with all sorts of regrets as you look back on what you were doing maybe before you got married, how you came into your relationship with Christ. There's huge different dynamics here. I want you to know that you can work it all through together. You can work it at Celebrate Recovery. You can work it at Journey Canada. You can come here to the offices. We'll work alongside with you. Come and talk to myself at the end of the gathering. Pastor Jordan will be at the cross. Sharon is here too. But you can't leave this place if something is going on inside of you that you need to deal with. Make a plan to deal with it. There are broken people here. We know that. You know that. I know that. Uh, Just, you know, come to this place of being real with yourselves. And maybe you're just saying, I'm stuck and I'm not sure how to navigate this, this space, single or married. But we're here for you. You know, I can sit and go off and talk about money and and sex, but it's really hard for us to be honest about it. But can I just say this? By your own admission and by being real with yourself, you're not going to be the first one. You're going to be about the 100,000 one, I think, that we've dealt with in about 30 years. You ought to come and just see what the Lord might do because nothing gets better by hiding it in the dark, but everything gets better when we bring it to light. So whether it's porn, a lack of communication, remember that rebuilding trust with your spouse takes hard work, it takes sacrifice, but it's worth it. There is no sin too great, too disgusting for the love of Jesus. Isn't that great? Isn't that great, people? The miracle of recovery occurs when love begins to fill us in a way that lust never could. Lust takes, love gives. Lust brings emptiness and regret. Love enriches our lives. Lust is an illusion, and yet love never fails. Sex isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing given by God. It's a gift of common grace for the flourishing of humankind. And as Christians, we see and understand that there's not a mere physical act. It's two souls becoming one that can be very beautiful or very painful. As Christians, we should want to listen to God's warning. Young people, single people, save your sex for marriage. Protect your marriage bed. Work at your friendships. 
We should want to work at our commitment. We should want to guard our eyes, want to guard our hearts. We want to guard our imaginations. We want to we should want to be a one woman man, one man woman uh, with how we think, with how we act, with what we look at. We should want to be constantly trying to cultivate friendship and respect between one another, especially now if you've already said I do. And married folk, you need to become experts in the beauty of the goodness of your spouse. You need to have a PhD uh, in your wife guys. Ladies, you need to have a PhD in your husbands. It's a dissertation. You know, it's easy to say all the good things, right? But they need to hear it. Well, I know all the bad things. Yeah, we all know the bad things. We don't have to work at spotting our weaknesses. We, you know, don't we naturally see what we wish was better? What we don't naturally see is what is good. And so bring goodness into your marriage. Bring it in with your words. Bring it in with your actions. Bring it in with your intimacy. And again, I want you to cultivate this. This I want soul to be a place of happy sex for marital couples. Thank you. I have high hopes. I have hopes that if you're a younger generation, you guys are being discipled in the exact opposite direction of what I'm trying to teach this morning and where I actually believe that the word of God teaches. And you are going counter to the very thing that leads, that leads to the thing that you so desperately want to be known, to have deep relationships. You want this value of the soul. But if you buy into your generation's version of what good sex is, then you're off the mark. You're going to miss it. And you're not going to experience the goodness that God has created for you to walk in. Brothers and sisters, let me end with this reality. Nobody in this room has out the grace of God. There is nothing in this room that upon repentance and confession, coming into the light, moving towards the forgiveness and mercy of God, cannot be wiped clean, cannot be reset, and reinvited into God's goodness and grace. He is there, and that's the beauty of our faith. And he does a wonderful thing in healing and rejuvenation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 12 gives a list of those who won't inherit the kingdom of God, but verse 11 is so powerful. And that's what some of you were, it says. Some, but you were washed, you were sanctified, justified in the name of Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And this verse is a promise of forgiveness for people who have dabbled in sin outside of what God's design is. And again, he says, that's what some of you were. So there's hope. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women here today. I just know that for our time together today, there's probably some gaps, some holes here, and some questions that need to be asked. But I do pray for men and women who are struggling in these areas of their lives. And I just pray for a willingness to come to the light and to be honest. I pray a blessing on the singles and on those who are married. I pray for my brothers and my sisters who are struggling with consistent pornography use. And I just ask, Spirit of God, that they would come into the light with that and that they would take very serious steps to put that sin to death. I ask God that we would have the courage to confess that and come into the light. And where intimacy is a real issue, either because of physical pain or emotional or spiritual baggage, I pray that you would help us not feel shame or embarrassment, but to seek refuge in you and to seek refuge in the community of faith. Thank God. Thank God. Thank you for your forgiveness, for your love, for your grace, for your patience with us. Help us because we need you. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Stand with me. In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Soul Sanctuary, you are God's servants. You are gifted with dreams and visions. And upon you rests the grace of God like flames of fire. So love and serve the Lord in the strength of the Spirit. And may the peace of Christ be with you. The strong arms of God, may he sustain you. The power of the Holy Spirit, strengthen you in every way. And finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the love, the God of love and peace will be with you. Now go and live the church. Amen.